This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and this week I'm joined by Danny Hewson. Hi Dan, it has been quite a week, particularly on Wall Street, which has seen records breaking all over the place, thanks in part to a new COVID treatment pill from Pfizer. And we just can't talk markets this week without commenting on that tweet from Elon Musk, which sent Tesla shares plummeting. There's also been another slew of corporate results to chew over, including a disappointing update from PayPal and some investor-pleasing figures from UK retailers Primark, which is part of Associated British Foods, and Marks and Spencers, which has issued yet another earnings upgrade. There's a warning from Direct Line about your car insurance. Claims have been creeping up as drivers get back on the roads, and that could lead, yeah, you guessed it, to higher premiums next year. Now, I've been chatting to Bill Ackman, who's made a fortune by betting on the stock market. I've been hearing about his latest gamble, which is Universal Music. Tom Selby's back with another Pensions Corner. Hi, Danny. Yes, that's right. I'm looking at the latest twist in plans to change the national minimum pension age, which has resulted in a government U-turn. I'll tell you everything you need to know about that. Thanks, Tom. So let's kick off with that news on Pfizer, because the company last week unveiled trial results showing that its new antiviral pill had been shown to cut the risk of hospitalisation or death from COVID-19 by 89%. Now, fewer than 1% of patients taking the drug needed to be admitted to hospital and no one died. Now, this is definitely a huge breakthrough and hopefully Pfizer can get it approved by early next year for widespread use. So I just think that with that pill and the existing vaccines, there really is an argument to say that the pharmaceutical industry has won this fight against COVID. And it certainly suggests greater chance of economic recovery, particularly for sectors like travel, which have been left behind. Now, when this news came out, it was really interesting to see some of the other drug companies suffer really big share price declines. Now, vaccine makers heavily invested in COVID-19 jabs like Moderna, uh, Novavax and BioNTech all fared the worst. And they sort of their shares fell between about 11 and 21 percent on the news. So I just think that the idea is if you, if you can have a pill to protect against COVID, that's got to be more appealing than having a jab. Now, there is a product already on the, already developed from Merck uh, in pill form, but this only halves the risk of hospitalisation or death in high risk groups, not the 89% score that Pfizer's seen. So I think the market is just voting at the moment by saying Pfizer is the one that is, you know, is the sort of the, the one to look at at the moment. Um, and I just think, but ultimately in, in the bigger scheme of things, this is all very positive for, um, you, know, you know, not just for stock markets, but, you know, just for, you know, generally for society as well. And that's, that's a really positive thing. Yeah, it was really interesting to watch all those cruise liners, their stocks creeping up. Because, of course, you know, if you think about the demographic of people that want to go on those cruises, I think that there is still a certain amount of a lack of confidence among some people about getting out there. And this could, as you say, be a huge game changer. Uh, made a big impact at markets at the end of last week. This week, Dan, we've seen another slew of corporate results out and it's not 
been plain sailing for everybody. No, and the, the one that definitely caught my eye was PayPal, whose shares fell about 10%. Now, this is highly unusual. This, you know, this is a stock that pe- many people think is invincible. Um, of course, you know, no, no, no company could be carrying that sort of status. But so PayPal lowered its guidance for revenue and earnings. And in particular, said the earnings have been hit by its former parent company, eBay. Now, you sort of go back and think that the two companies used to be together. Um, and since then, eBay has come out and said, we're going to change the way we do things. So if you sell something now on eBay's auction platform, um, the way that you get paid is directly from the company rather than the old system of going through PayPal. Now, of course, that means that um, PayPal is losing out on fees there. Um, and eBay is arguably doing a bit better because it also used the opportunity to push up his own fees. Um but you know, PayPal has been split from this company for for you know quite a few years, um, and I think it goes. They decided to end their partnership in 2018. So I, I just think that you know people should look at this perhaps and say you know is this a temporary problem or something uh, you know some bigger issue long term? And you know PayPal's message was certainly that that you know you, you got to look to the future. Um, we know all about the, the the pressures from eBay, but really it's all about what we're going to do. Um, in in the months and years ahead, and they've just inked a deal with Amazon to allow its Venmo wallets in the US to be accepted on Amazon's platform. And you know, I think that PayPal doing a deal with Amazon's is got to be a positive move. Um, you know, I don't know about you, Danny, but you know, I found myself being a massive user of PayPal in the last couple of years. It's so much yeah. easier. To, you know, just log into, you know, just use your PayPal details to pay for something rather than having to scramble around, find your wallet, get your debit card out and type those numbers in. So um, I, I use just it think- for everything. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And what you say about the um, the whole PayPal eBay thing, this time last year, I was getting rid of all the kids Lego because they had so much of it and I'd kept the boxes. So I put it all together in the boxes, made sure everything was there, stuck it on eBay, made quite a lot of money and it did all go through PayPal. And my husband's a great big eBayer and he's finding it really annoying now that it's not going through PayPal. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I, I, I sort of, don't sell things very often on eBay, but you know, I certainly know what it was like when I was more prolific years ago. But um, you know, I had something through the other day, and it, it takes a couple of days for that for that money to come through now. But you know, just generally, I think to, to me, PayPal is so much more convenient. And, and if I sort of see a retailer, I'm thinking, oh, should I buy this product? And if I see that you know you can use PayPal as a form of payment, I'm probably more likely to do it than if it's like, I'm sorry, you've got to go and just put your debit card details in because inevitably, I just don't have that to hand anymore um mm. it's just a change in the way of our shopping habits perhaps yeah absolutely it is um i know that you're going to talk about amc a little bit but before you do that i'm just going to throw tesla into the mix because i am have to say that you would think about now elon musk might be thinking i really wish someone had taken my phone away from me on friday before i had this bright idea to t- set up a twitter poll which I said that I would absolutely abide by the result. And it seemed Tesla's shares absolutely tanked. The stock down ended down 12%. Um, we're recording this Wednesday lunchtime. That was yesterday. Over two days, it shed as much as $200 billion off its market cap. And it seems like an utterly bonkers way to make a decision. But then, you know, Elon Musk, he's 
quite well known for being pretty out there on social media. But this, for, to me, takes the biscuit. He put out this poll asking his Twitter followers if he should sell 10% of the stock that he still owns in his company. He said, whatever you say, I will do it. He said that the reason behind it is because of tax um, and potentially the proposed sale could coincide with a federal tax bill of nearly 11 billion that will be triggered by exercising a chunk of his Tesla stock options. 58% of people said yes. Now, you might take that with a pinch of salt and you might be thinking that he can, you know, just just change his mind but he said that he will absolutely abide by this result and Dan I think the reason that investors have been so nervous about this is that this poll came out just a day after his brother sold a chunk of his stock and in fact four former and current board members have filed to sell nearly a billion dollars of shares late last month that's according to filings and markets data so you know, despite the fact that despite the plunge, Tesla is still up nearly 50% year to date. This is a big knock and it seems a pretty out there thing to do from someone at the helm of a company. Yeah, it's, it's definitely unusual. I mean, what, why, why would you turn to social media to ask sort of for guidance on what you're going to do with your wealth? It's like, um, and I think it's just irresponsible as well, because if you're a shareholder in Tesla and you've got the, you know, the, the boss and also the biggest shareholder in the business saying, um, okay, I'm thinking about sort of dumping quite a lot of stock on the market. Well, that, of course, that's going to push the price down. Everyone's going to say, you know, they want to get out first before he does, he, you know, Elon Musk goes and does his trade. Um, you know, I'm sure there'd be lots of people looking to buy back in if they still like it. But yeah, I just, you know, this is not very good, but, you know, it extends um, a great long list of things that he's not done uh, follow the you know the, the the appropriate procedures and stuff. I just um, you know, but equally, some people like the fact that he's unpredictable. Um, he's this is wacky entrepreneur, and without these sort of mannerisms and characteristics, it, 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 the company wouldn't be what it is. And you know, and also, um, this is sort of has to be welcomed in a world of um, you know. Uh, it's on contrast of lots of boring companies. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's odd move, but you know, nothing's uh, unpredictable perhaps when it comes to Elon Musk. Now, you're going to talk about AMC because I'm just going to do a very quick look at the latest US inflation figures. So you crack on with AMC. What's going on there? Yeah, well, this is a big cinema operator in America. Um, you know, it was one of those so-called meme stocks, which, along with GameStop last year, attracted lots of attention. People talking about it on social media network Reddit, and you know, as part of a, a broader thing to hype up certain stocks. So, you know, AMC sort of said that its third quarter is better than expected, um, which is which is good. You know, it's promising for the cinema industry, but you know, the company's still loss making. And, you know, the, the, had a very negative reaction from investors because the CEO's saying there's still some pandemic challenges ahead. But, you know, I, I think that the, the perhaps the, the most important thing about AMC here is that it's, it's what else is it doing apart from cinemas? Because it's now talking about launching its own cryptocurrency and it's planning to launch its own popcorn retail business, <laughs> which is... <laughs> You know, I was always told, you know, you look at a business and it should stick to, to, to what it does best. Um, so when you're branching out into crypto stuff and think that you can you know, rival 
existing popcorn manufacturers um, for shelf space in supermarkets and stuff, as well as having takeaway popcorn from cinemas. I, I think this is a slightly strikes me as a bit of a madness, but you know, perhaps you know, listeners can, can disagree with me. Um, but to me, like AMC is also not doing itself any favours by um, sort of perhaps behaving this way. I do like a bit of popcorn, uh, particularly there's a coconut flavoured one. Yeah, but would you call? You know, would you go on to sort of you know, deliver or something and say, I, "I really want the one that I get in the pop in the cinema," because um, yeah, ultimately, it's just I could just see them trying to bundle it all into a box. The driver knocks it over on their way here, and it's like you know, it's just disaster in the making, isn't it? So. It tastes better when it's been on the floor, Dan. It really does. <laughs> yeah. Um, so should we should we sort of have a switch to UK retail then? So we've um, actually so before that, do, do, do you want to talk about the US inflation figures because they're equally important, aren't they? So. Yeah, they've literally come in um, just over half an hour ago, and it's not brilliant news if you're Goldilocks and you're looking for a nice cool temperature because inflation CPI rose to 6.2% last month. That's up from 5.4% in September. It is higher than lots of analysts have been anticipating. In fact, it's now at the highest annual rate since November 1990. We've spoken a lot about the reasons for what's going on at the moment in terms of price pressures and the fact that a lot of it is down to supply chain snarl-ups, you know, not being able to get hold of stuff. The fact that commodities prices have risen. But this is going to be pretty uncomfortable reading for a lot of people because central banks very much have been wanting to allow economies to run hot. That's what they said right at the beginning when everything started to ease up, that they were going to let inflation run a little bit hotter than they would normally do so. But 6.2% is really quite high. And for families that are really struggling just to, you know, make ends meet every week, when they're going to the supermarket, they're seeing food prices up. That number is not going to be particularly comfortable at all. And of course, we get UK inflation figures out next week. And I know a lot of investors will be taking a good long look at that, particularly in the wake of the decision by the Bank of England not to hike interest rates, when, of course, so many people thought that that is what would happen. So, I mean, consumers are definitely going to be feeling the pinch, aren't they? The, the, the general cost of living is going up. But what does that, does that sort of stop them spending money with retailers at all? It's been really interesting because um, there were some figures out earlier this week from the British Retail Consortium. And despite the fact that we are seeing these price pressures, it doesn't at the moment seem to be filtering through to the stores. Now, there's probably quite an important reason behind that. And that is the fact that we saw all these warnings uh, about a month ago from retailers saying, we're a bit concerned about the availability of products on the shelf for Christmas, so maybe get out there early. And that certainly seems to be what is happening. We also had uh, another survey out the same day by Barclaycard, which showed that consumers had increased their spending by 14.2% compared with October 2019. So, you know, once again, we are seeing 
um, demand for things like um, electrical items. We're seeing um, health and beauty sales performing well. Things like advent calendars also flying off the shelves at the moment. And what's really interesting is that online sales were down a bit because consumers were returning to physical stores. And that, of course, will have a knock on to those retailers that only have physical stores. What about this idea of shopping for Christmas, though? It's, it, it, it does seem like people are, are, are bringing forward their spending, because I guess we are seeing those adverts on TV now, aren't we, so for, which feels a bit early. But <laughs> How I guess many have you seen? Well, I think I've only seen the John Lewis one. So what about you? I, uh, just before we came on, I made sure that I'd gone through and seen a number of them. And John Lewis does exactly what you expect it would do. But I have to say that the Aldi one, the replacement for Kevin the Carrot, the banana. Yeah, that could be my favourite, I think. How about you, Tom? Uh, for me, Christmas doesn't even come into my mindset until December. So I've I've, I've not seen or heard of any of these adverts yet, but I'll be... I'll be sure to do my my research as the big day approaches. You're not one of these people that does the Christmas shopping early, then. Oh my word, no, no, no! It's I've I've improved I've improved over the years. But I mean, I I used to be a classic twenty first, twenty second of December panic shopper in Argos. Um, I've improved now. I'd, I'd say it's probably close to closer to tenth of December or something like that. But I never like to plan too far in advance. <laughs> not when it comes to Christmas shopping, anyway. <laughs> So well, you haven't been pulled in by all these uh, retailers saying, you know, be aware, we might have shortages on the shelves come the 10th of December. It sounds like my family's just going to have some worse presents than they would have they would have <laughs> otherwise have. And that's going to be on me. <laughs> I also took a look at the M&S advert and I'm not particularly sold on, on the general one, but the um, food one is brilliant because Percy Pig comes to life. And that's probably quite uh, interesting considering the latest set of figures from Marks and Spencer because food sales doing particularly well, particularly in store. You know, it has absolutely nailed that. And its joint venture with Ocado helped the business really reach a, a broader audience. And, and what we've sailed, seen again is that you know, pre-tax profit for the year, they're expecting to be at the upper end of their previous guidance. You know, it's talking about profit hitting 500 million, which is quite some jump from the 300 to 350 million range that had been talking about before. But Marks and Spencer's really has been in something of a of a turnaround. It, it's gone very much back to basics. We know before the pandemic, it was looking at streamlining and getting rid of some of the stores. And it's really focused on its online offer. But when you think about M&S, what's the first thing you think of, Dan, in terms of clothes? Socks, pants, exciting things like that. <laughs> But of course, you know, that is the one thing that has sort of dogged M&S for quite a while. And it's really not enough to sustain the, the business proper, is it? And, you know, when you think about some of the other staples that they did, the, the sort of formal wear, well, they've sort of pushed that to a side quite a lot um, of late because, 
you know, we've all been working from home. So athleisure wear has been the big thing that uh, a lot of customers have been asking for, except for some of the older M&S customers who, you know, maybe aren't looking for those splash proof running bottoms. So they've still got quite a bit of work to do. But when I was talking about the fact that online sales had dropped, that is something which has really helped Primark because Associated British Foods had some results out earlier this week as well. Um, Full year revenue was slightly below market forecasts. But the one thing that really got investors going was the comments about Primark. It has seen shoppers come back. It was the one place where following um, lockdowns when stores were allowed to open, that is where you saw the queues of people because you can't buy Primark's clothes online. It's it's very much a pilot high, sell it cheap mentality. But at the moment, of course, when you're talking about issues with shipping, what they're having to do is make sure that they have their stores looking great, that when you go into the store, you can find what you like. And that although there will be some supply chain issues, you won't notice because they will make sure that shelves are filled, even if they might not be filled with exactly what they are expecting to put on them. So Primark doing really well and hoping that this Christmas is going to be a belter for them. So I think we move on to our next session is that we're now going to talk about some sort of warning section and there's there's some potentially bad news and sort of risk things to consider so um they are important so please don't stop listening but um but yeah let, let me start off with some stuff on the insurance market um now direct line is sort of saying that inflation in cost per insurance claim has been running about three to five percent above its expectations and it, all the blame is being put on the second-hand car market um we know there's been a shortage of semiconductors and that has disrupted the production of new cars. Um, but the, the consequences are that it's boosted uh, used car market. So prices for used cars in the UK have been rising for about you know, almost you know, almost 20 months. And actually in October, they're up 26% from a year earlier. And, and this is relevant to the insurance industry because if a car is written off in an accident, it's the insurer who pays out what actually the car would cost today in the second-hand market. So, um, you know, this is a bit frustrating because it, it kind of means that you're going to be looking at higher insurance premiums quite soon, which is equally frustrating because we've actually been seeing them fall for a bit. Car insurance is currently about 7% cheaper than it was last year. Um, and so, unfortunately, there's going to be a bit of reversal of this trend. So you'll have to add car insurance to your list of um, ever-growing things that are getting more expensive, I'm afraid. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Bringing us good news. Um, we've also had a warning from the Federal Reserve warning about the prices of risky assets, saying, look, if they keep rising, then they're more susceptible if the bottom falls out of the market. And of course, you know, it's talking very much about social media, how that is influencing trading, it's talked about stable coins, and also talked about cryptocurrency. Now, that's particularly important this week because Bitcoin reached a new record high. It broke through the $68,000 barrier, £50,000, and 
a lot of analysts are saying that, you know, this cryptocurrency will rise further in the coming weeks. Other cryptocurrencies also saw an increase as well. But I thought it was really interesting to take a look at a survey um, which came out, which said that um, a third of millennials and half of Generation Z would be happy to receive 50% of their salary in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency. Now, this is a poll carried out by the DeVere Group. Um, it also was pointing to the fact that new New York City mayor-elect Eric Adams has announced that he plans to take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin. It's an attempt on his behalf to try and compete with Miami as one of America's top crypto hubs. So, Dan, if uh, I were to tell the boss to pay you your next paycheck in crypto, what do you think? So I think I would actually just say, no, it's not my kind of thing. But uh, let's now hear from someone who does have a greater appetite for risk. And that's Bill Ackman. And he was the envy of the investment world last year. He turned $27 million into $2.6 billion last year when he bet that the coronavirus would destroy markets. And he went and bought some financial products which netted him a profit if markets did tank. Of course, we now know that they did. He used the proceeds to wager that existing stocks in his portfolio, such as um, one of the hotel groups, would rebound, which they also did. And of course, he came out smiling from all this um, you know, activity and volatility. And so I recently caught up with him to talk about stocks and markets. And in particular, I wanted to ask him about his latest bet, which is that Universal Music will make a considerable amount of money in the future. So let's hear what he had to say about that stock. The context for the music business uh, is not a great one from the peak, the previous peak of the industry in 1999 uh, to 2015, when things started to turn around. And, and what happened basically is you had a business that was a physical business of selling DVDs and, and, uh, and records. And then digitization of music made it easy to pirate and people stole music, kids stole music, uh, et cetera. And it became easier and more convenient to steal music than to go to a record store and buy music. And that almost killed the industry. Uh, you know, Apple launched the iPod and a download business, which started to replace some of those lost sales. It still was expensive to build a, you know, get a few hundred songs and it cost you $500 to put together a portfolio of music. Um, and then Spotify launched. Um, and it's really Spotify over the last sort of decade that's uh, <clears throat> led to uh, the re recovery of the music business as streaming has become more recently more than half of, of music industry revenues. And Universal as the best managed and dominant player with a third of, of global music market share recorded uh, industry, um, you know, was the first player to make deals with you know, the Spotify's of the world and then Apple Music and Amazon Music, Google Music. And the the, the transition to streaming has made this business a vastly better business than it was in the 90s. It's no longer a hit-driven business. It's really driven by subscriber growth. Uh, so you know, the 450 million people that are subscribed to one of the various streaming services and they pay a monthly fee. It's a very modest expense compared to what they spent in the past. And Universal gets a royalty on those uh, expenditures. And so it's, you know, think of the business as a royalty on people listening to music and the ease, convenience, and low cost of being a subscriber will lead to continued high rate of subscriber growth in our view. And then there's been a proliferation in devices, uh, you know, think smartphones, smartwatches, um, 
you know, smart speakers, uh, smart cars, you know, that have made uh, access to music streaming more accessible. People are spending more time listening to music. They're working from home listening to music. Uh, and music is present many, many more hours in the day. And so the demand uh, for streaming uh, music is, is going up. So that's a great environment in which to be in this business. Then you layer onto that what's going on in social media. And, you know, Facebook has gotten in some hot water, if you will, for, you know, promoting anger on the website, if you will, encourage, you know, through feeding people stuff that gets them anger, ang angry, that increases their, if you will, attention, uh, which enables the Facebooks of the world to drive advertising sales. But instead of getting people angry, you can just add music to social media and people spend more time. So the TikTok, TikTok would not be TikTok without music. And uh, Instagram is with music. Uh, has become a much more successful, um, you know, sort of application. And so music's really being added everywhere. And that's a great, that's great for all of the record label companies and recording artists and publishers. Uh, but in that context, Universal happens to be by far the best company in the industry. They've got the greatest market share. They've got the best management team. They've got the strongest balance sheet. They've got the fastest growth. Uh, and, um, you know, this is one of the great businesses ever in our view. And because of the way we acquired our interest, we acquired the interest in a private transaction with Vivendi, um, they were less focused on extracting the maximum dollar. They were focused on finding a long-term steward for the company because they were giving up control of the company in connection with the spinoff of the, of the company to shareholders. And you know, they liked the structure of Pershing Square Holdings. They liked the fact that insiders, including myself, own 25% of the company. I think it reminded Mr. Bellari is the control shareholder of his own company. Vivendi is 30% controlled by the family. They're long-term investors. And that's what he was looking for. And so we bought a stake. And two weeks after we closed, it went public. And the trading price is about 30% above the price we paid. Um, and we still think it's quite cheap. So if you want to hear the rest of my conversation with Bill Ackman, the videos are available on YouTube. Just search for AJ Bell You Invest and you'll find them. Or you can watch them on the AJ Bell You Invest Markets. Go to the Shares and Markets tab and then click the Investment Videos section. Thank you, Dan. I dare say a lot of people will have been taking notes during that interview. And you might want to keep your pen handy because Tom Selby, pension guru, is back. Now, Tom, we had this question from Carl. I'll be 55 in September 2028. It's possible I'll be adversely affected by the increase in the normal minimum pension age to 57. Is it possible to protect my rights to access my pension at age 55 before the change comes into effect? I hold a SIP with a large investment platform. Now, this is an article that you answered in last week's Shares magazine, and then the government decided to make a little U-turn. What's going on? Yes, that's right. So uh, the, the, answer I, the answer I produced to Carl's question was correct at the time it was published, but on the day it was published, the, the proposals changed. So that's the, the, the dangers of being a pensions policy wonk, I suppose, the, uh, <laughs> the possibility that the government will change things at the last minute. So I think it's probably worth clarifying exactly what's going on and how it might affect Carl. So this is all quite complicated, more complicated, I'd say, than it needs to be. Um, so for those who are interested and who can't quite follow everything as I go through it, and I'll try and take it step by step, I've written an explainer article in next week's Shares magazine for those people who are interested and think it might affect them. So 
Firstly, let's look at the parts of the proposals that aren't changing as a result of the announcement on the 4th of November. So from April 2028, the minimum age you can access your pension, as you mentioned, that's the normal minimum pension age or NMPA, will increase from age 55 to 57. So on the face of it, that will affect Carl as his birthday is in September 2028. Now, that sounds like something that would be quite simple to do, but rather than apply that increase in the normal minimum pension age across the board, the government's proposed creating a protection regime so that people who are in a scheme which had an NMPA below age 57 on the 11th of February 2021, so that was when these changes were first proposed, when someone who has an NMPA below age 57 on that date hardwired into their scheme rules can retain that earlier pension access age. So this is going to be known as a protected pension age in the rules. Now, are you still following me? Because we're only just at the start of this, but I'm going to keep going. So Still following you. Okay, good. So not everyone will have a protected pension age. So that's what Carl's interested in here. It's, it's going to be pretty random, and it might not be clear to you just by looking at your scheme rules or your policy documentation. So I suggest... If you're interested in finding out, then it's worth asking your pension scheme and they should hopefully be able to give you an idea. Now, there are some professions who've been exempted from this increase altogether. So firefighters, police and armed forces, members of those schemes won't be affected by the increase to age 57. Now, just looking at private pensions and those who are affected. So if people who do have this protected pension age in their scheme subsequently make a transfer to another scheme, then the transferred funds will keep the lower minimum access age. But the funds that are in the scheme that they transfer to or any new contributions to that scheme will have a normal minimum pension age of 57 from April 2028. So what that means is that there will be circumstances where people will transfer pensions that have a protected pension age to a scheme that doesn't have a protected pension age, and it will mean their pot will essentially be split in two, one part of it having an NMPA of 55 and another part of it having an NMPA of 57. But as I say, that will only be for people who have who had a, had a scheme which, which was eligible for a protected pension age on the 11th of February. So the final bit to this bit, and then we'll go into the bits that have change as a result of what happened on the 4th of November. So people with a protected pension age who transfer as part of a block with at least one other member of the same old pension scheme to the same new pension scheme will be able to retain the lower minimum access age for all the funds in the new scheme. So that's all the stuff that the government proposed that's still going ahead as planned. However, changes have been proposed in relation to people not currently in a scheme with a protected pension age. So these are people not currently in a scheme, which is going to allow them to keep a normal minimum pension age of below 57 from April 2028. So originally, the government had planned to allow people who join or transfer to a scheme with a normal minimum pension age below 57 by the 5th of April 2023 to keep the lower normal minimum pension age. But the government was worried and received lots of representations from people in the industry that not only was this going to lead to loads of complexity, but I might also present a scams risk as well. So you could have scammers and fraudsters looking to 
offer people in inverted commas the opportunity to transfer to a scheme with a lower minimum access age when in fact they weren't offering that lower minimum access age and they were probably just looking to steal the money from people. So the government listened to those concerns and has decided that for, uh, the, the only people who are already members of a scheme with a uh, with a lower normal minimum pension age hardwired in or who have started a transfer to a scheme offering a, a lower normal minimum pension age below 57 before 4th of November 2021, will be able to retain that lower normal minimum pension age. Now, I appreciate that's a lot, a lot of stuff that I've just covered there, quite complicated stuff as well. From Carl's perspective, it's he will be able to keep access to a normal, it's possible he'll be able to keep access to a, a minimum pension age of 55, but only if he's already a member of a scheme which has this hardwired into its rules or if he started the process of transferring to a scheme with it hardwired into his rules before the 4th of November. A couple of couple of extra things I think it's worth thinking about around here because that was just the technicalities around what the government's proposing. First of all, this stuff hasn't quite gone through Parliament yet, so we're not expecting any more changes to the proposals, but it's not impossible, so we'll keep you updated of any changes that do come forward. And probably more importantly, to the, the decision, decision of whether to join a pension scheme or whether to transfer to a pension scheme shouldn't really be swung by whether or not you're going to access it at 55 or 57. In the vast majority of circumstances, either 55 or 57 is probably too early. Other factors like costs and charges, choice, flexibility are all likely to be more important in the, in the decision of where you hold your pension's money. Now, I, as I said, I appreciate there's quite a lot to digest there, but if you have a look in next week's shares, there, there's an article breaking all of that stuff down, all those changes down. So hopefully it will be a little bit clearer for everyone. Thanks, Tom. We have no Jenny Owen this week, but Dan, you spotted an interesting report from Aviva, which is frankly making me feel quite happy because I decided not to splash out for a hot tub or a pizza oven last summer when it seemed that everybody else was buying one. And it seems some people that did uh, maybe weren't so happy. Well, that's right. But Danny, you must have regretted buying something during the pandemic. Did you not buy like a Peloton bike or a ukulele or something (laughs) (laughs) no no um my kids had a horse on a lockdown loan and that was it all the money went on that yeah well there certainly seems to be a lot of regret across the nation according to this report because um aviva reckons that uk adults spent more than 6.6 billion pounds on pandemic purchases that they no longer use uh, you know, that's that's quite a lot of money. And they're sort of suggesting it might be about just £1,200 per person on, you know, sort of treats during the pandemic. Most popular were clothes and shoes. Um, then it was like gadgets and electrical goods. Um, you know, there was home gym equipment was very popular. But, you know, you mentioned hot tub at the start. I, I do find it utterly yeah. bonkers that one in 20 adults say they bought a hot tub during the pandemic. Now, the only person I could possibly think who would have done that is you, Tom, because I know that you've got a kayak and you're probably looking somewhere to sail it when you were in lockdown. Uh, so, is so that there's, true? There's, there's, there, so there are various lies in what you've just said. <laughs> um, I, do, I, don't, I, I don't own a kayak. I don't know where you've got that from. Um, my, my partner and I bought a, an inflatable uh, boat to sail down Regent's Canal during the very early stages of lockdown. Um, we used it 
once. Um, it was vaguely fun, and then we and then we got rid of it. But we wouldn't have anywhere to store a kayak, frankly. Um, so no, my my main lockdown savings spends were on um, tickets for sporting events when things opened up. I think I got myself a new pair of new pair of running trainers because that was kind of the only thing that you could do during those really grim days of early lockdown in kind of April, May, um, June of, uh, of 2020. I think a couple of items of clothing, but that that was about it for me. I really wanted a paddleboard, but again, it's the storing it thing. And also, how often would you use it? That that's the thing. And this is clearly what a lot of people are finding. How about you, Dan? I, I know you didn't get a hot tub, but pizza oven? No, I spent all my money on records, uh, a couple of bikes and T-shirts, and I get used out of all of them. So I've got no, absolutely no regrets at all. But um, I imagine if you go onto eBay now, it might be quite a good time to snap up some bargains if people are looking to get rid of unwanted stuff. Well, there we go. That's where I'm headed now. Uh, that is it for this week's podcast. Next week, I'll be joined by Laura Souter, and we'll also hear from Gareth Griffith from Green Bank Triodos about the practicalities of making your day-to-day banking greener. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.